Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Joshua Friedman. Hi, and welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. I'm Joshua Friedman, news editor at Rappaport. On this episode, we were joined by Dustin Lemick, the founder and CEO of Brightco, an insurance technology company. Because of Dustin's role in the insurance industry, he has a unique perspective on jewelry sales, prices, and trends. We talked about the problems facing jewelry insurance, consumer demand, lab-grown diamonds, and of course, the holiday season. We recorded this conversation on December the 20th, while the holiday season was still going on, so we didn't have final sales data at the time, but that didn't prevent Dustin from sharing valuable insights into the state of diamond retail. Enjoy the episode. Okay, so Dustin, great to have you on this podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'd just like to start really by asking about your background and about Brightco. What is Brightco and what are your what, what is your role in the market? Yeah, Joshua, first off, thank you so much for having me. Um, a huge fan of Rappaport and just appreciate all the work that you guys do in the industry. So thanks for that. I think it's helpful, actually, if I give a little bit of context on my personal background, and that sort of leads into Brightco itself. I am a third generation jeweler, and my family has retail independent stores right outside of Chicago, which my grandfather started in the 50s. And, you know, my father and my brother run that business now. One of the things that I was very active in when I was involved in the actual retail business was insurance claim replacements. And I realized really quickly at that point, I mean, we're rewinding back to like 2015 to 2017, that there was a lot of issues with insurance, issues with claims, insurance and appraisals. Um, It's also no secret to pretty much everybody in the industry that appraisals are sort of have been broken. And so we've set out to sort of fix appraisals and the insurance process you know, going back to the insurance piece, it was just not working well for jewelers. So Brightco was really born out of pain points that I personally felt in the industry from working in the industry. We set out to build an insurance technology company and we provide technology for our jeweler partners. And what that means is, you know, we provide probably the best in class appraisal system for our jeweler partners, that's completely free. And we also provide best in class insurance for the end user, for a consumer. We work with three different distribution channels. You know, of course, like I mentioned, we work with our jeweler partners. We also have a direct to consumer business, and we also work with insurance agents and insurance brokers. But we really provide a lot of value back to our jeweler partners. We work with over 3,000 retailers in the US. But in short, what Brightco is, is an insurance technology company. We provide state-of-the-art technology for jewelers, and we provide really kind of a best-in-class insurance product for consumers. You say it's known that appraisals are broken. In what way is that the case? So appraisals are broken from my perspective, and I think a lot of jewelers would agree with this. First of all, like just the table stakes, they just are inefficient and take a really long time for folks to do. So stores that do a lot of volume, the current tool set that's available to jewelers is not very good. You know, it's pre-Brightco when I started the company, it was you either had an appraisal system that was built on really old technology that was almost more cumbersome than just like handwriting appraisals. 
By the way, a lot of folks are still handwriting appraisals. You know, in today's age, that should not ever really happen, to be honest with you. There's just better tools like a Brightco appraisal system. We all know time is money, especially like right now when things are so busy and there's so much being thrown at a jeweler, like you don't want to spend hours doing appraisals. So we wanted to solve the time issue and make it easier, faster, more efficient. That's one. Two is the values. And I think a lot of jewelers, anyone who's seen a lot of appraisals totally can understand this. The values can be super inflated or just flat out wrong. So in Brightco, for instance, we have built algorithms into the appraisal system that give like guidelines for here is what a range of what this item that you're appraising should be. And we don't dictate the value, but we give ranges and say, here's a backstop. So, you know, sort of a second opinion, if you will. So that's another thing that we're solving for is making sure values are correct. It's important for insurance, honestly, because when a consumer goes to an insurance company to get an insurance policy, they're using the appraisal or the documents that the jeweler provides. And that value that the jeweler is putting on is establishing the value for replacement. If it's super inflated, which we see a lot, not with our system because we have controls to try to help a jeweler make sure it's a fair value. But what ends up happening is the consumer ends up just paying more money in insurance and it's like not totally fair. So those are a couple examples, but it's really like speed, efficiency, just a better process for a jeweler and giving them tools to help them better run their business. All right. Focusing on the issue of insurance, when we spoke a couple of years ago, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you told me that... The way the insurance for lab-grown diamonds is done is broadly the same as for natural diamonds. Do, do I remember that correctly? And also, how has the falling prices of lab-grown diamonds affected the world of insurance for those? It's a really interesting question. When we spoke last, we were like in the first inning. And I, I remember very clearly trying to articulate with a limited data set at that point because it was relatively new still. With insurance, lab-grown specifically, we, and I believe most insurance companies, at least any insurance companies that have any specialty knowledge on jewelry, will insure lab-grown diamonds the same way they insure natural diamonds or any other precious or semi-precious stones or pieces of jewelry or watches for that matter. It's insured exactly the same process. Now, going back to what I was saying before, establishing value is, like I mentioned, a critical component to the whole insurance process for the consumer. Now, once it's off the jeweler's plate, it's sort of in the consumer's hands. The way I looked at myself when I was an independent jeweler is like a consultant, right? Like if you're an independent jeweler, you really are a consultant for your customer. So you have a hand in it as well, if you're a jeweler, to try to help advise your customer in the right way. Some of that is providing accurate paperwork and establishing the correct value. So now we're talking about values for lab rounds, and that is a really tricky subject. What we're seeing, I could tell you what we're seeing kind of to your question, is we're seeing definitely inflated values for lab rounds, very large margins built in there. And I am not here at all to tell anybody how to run a business or how much money to make. That is not our place, just not for us to get into. But I can tell you what we're seeing is we're seeing really healthy margins in a lot of these, at least from the appraisal value. What does that mean, though, for the consumer at the end of the day? When you have drastically falling prices, if there is a loss in the future, they could be drastically overinsured. 
you know, we try to educate, we try to educate our partners, our jeweler partners, and make sure that folks are aware. And going back to the consulting angle that I was sort of referring to as the jeweler, I feel like it's really important for a jeweler to sort of give, I'm not saying not to sell lab rounds, but to give the information so that the consumer is educated in terms of what they're buying. No one can predict the future and jewelers aren't here to be stockbrokers to say, hey, this price of a diamond is going to do, but at least giving some, a little bit of education and some data that all factors, and I'm kind of going to full circle it back to it, all factors into the price of the item and ultimately the price of insurance for a consumer and the amount that that item would cost to replace if a loss were actually to happen. So hopefully that makes sense, but like it's all full circle in my opinion. That was really my next question was whether it's the insurer would pay out the replacement value or the value that the consumer bought it for. Let's say he bought it for five times more five years ago. So 95% of these insurance policies are replacement value policies, which is the right policy for almost every single consumer. The idea is if there's a loss, the consumer is made whole is how we detail it out. So if there was a loss, they would have exact replacement to what they had. If they had a two carat GSI one natural diamond center with, you know, a platinum mounting with a caratomelli, they should get that exact thing back. That's a replacement policy. That's the vast majority of these policies. And the reason why it's better, there, it doesn't have to be a replacement policy, by the way. There's other policies out there. They're just not economically viable. They are, but they're just much more expensive. So an example is that replacement policy that a consumer wants to buy generally, like we charge at Brightco, like a half a percent to one and a half percent. That is really low, like really good value. There's other types of policies that will issue like a cash out policy. So like if you were insured for 20 grand, they will write you a check for 20 grand. Those policies are significantly more expensive. And frankly, it's not what I believe the point of insurance is for most folks. Most consumers, you know, a millennial buying an engagement ring, they want protection to know that if the item is lost, that at least they can get it back. That's exactly what a replacement policy does. So you get into this interesting conundrum with these drastically falling lab-grown prices because if something is insured for 20 grand, let's just say like the wholesale today was 10 grand, right? And then there's large margins built in and they're insuring it for 20 grand. And then a loss happens. You know, the insurance companies, including ourselves, on a replacement policy, pay the price plus commission. So like we always pay our jewelers commission. So it's like wholesale price plus commission plus taxes. And like, that's the total amount of value that would be compensated. Now, right, that's a fair thing, but with the falling prices, it can get out of whack. So there's one way we're educating folks to play against this, which is get value updates. Update the value of your policy on a somewhat regular basis. At Brightco, like I mentioned before, we have algorithms that will actually tell a consumer, like our algorithms will actually move with the market for the most part. There's some structure to that and there's, you know, not every scenario fits into that algorithm, but making sure values are updated is important in a lot of ways, whether it's overinsured or underinsured. But it's a tricky situation right now with drops that drastically, it, it creates some problems. How do you assess the value of any diamond, but particularly for a, a lab grown diamond? What would be the sources of information on that? So we have partnerships and data feeds where we're bringing in real time data. We built like pricing algorithms that take the data and actually analyze it and will say based on the inputs. So we have 
the average weight, for instance, of a engagement ring of the actual mounting is built into the algorithm. So we like know average weights. We know what a two carat GSI one round approximately would be priced at today in real time. Same thing with the Melly. And we basically build a price and then we give a range and it's pretty exact, to be honest with you. It's relatively impressive. So it's a great tool for our jeweler partners that are using our appraisal system. They get a lot of information in terms of to try to help them. And like the whole point we're trying to do is to try to help establish correct values. It's a really important thing. When you talk about updating the value for LabGrown, is that something that will be done as a sort of long-term policy or a long-term relationship with the jeweler? And therefore that might put the jeweler in an awkward position where he's sort of acknowledging to the the consumer that this lab grown diamond is losing value every year or whatever it is very good question we never do that we always leave it in the jeweler's hands like always the jeweler's hands we just recommend to the jeweler look you should consider doing this our algorithms help establish the most important thing is establishing the initial value put lab grown aside for a second everything else it's really important to establish the initial value correctly then it'll move with the markets. And one thing we do, because we need to protect our jewelers, to your point, we'll never recommend to a consumer to decrease the value. So we'll only let them know if they're underinsured because of exactly what you just said. We don't want to get in a situation like our one of our main objectives to protect our jeweler. We don't want to get in that conversation. We don't want our jewelers to get in that conversation, but we do want to make sure that we give our jewelers the tools that will really help them to run their business and to hopefully, like I said before, like act in that consulting role is like you're consulting with your customer and you're really trying to help them. So yeah, I mean, it's a really good question, but yeah, we stay far away from that and we don't have any issues with that. Right. So you're just giving them the information so they know what are their underinsured rather than, right. And focusing on natural diamonds, have you seen a decrease in consumer prices this year commensurate with the price decline that we've seen in many categories and on the wholesale side? Yeah, we've seen a little bit. It's not nearly as drastic as you're seeing in the wholesale side. I think there's some a significant buffer, which is good. I have to look at our data. I'd guess it to be somewhere in like the five to 10% range. Order values are coming down a little bit too. I mean, we're still seeing a lot of lab grown engagement rings. We're seeing a lot of them still probably close to 50-50, which is drastic, but I don't consider that to be a healthy balance for the most part. Personally, I think everyone has their own opinion on this. So I'll just kind of talk on my personal opinion. I think we're going to end up settling more in a healthier balance for natural. I think we're in that really weird stage right now where the market has not fully flushed out. To me, all comes back down to pricing. So the wholesale side of things has definitely flushed out the pricing. No question, the pricing has been fully flushed out or very close to that. It has not trickled all the way through to consumers. So I do think that there's this marketing perception, and I think it's an age-old thing where there's this perceived value. If something's expensive, it's perceived as valuable. If something is inexpensive, it's perceived as not valuable. And I don't think that effect has taken a hold yet on lab grounds, but I certainly think it's going to. It's obviously a race to the bottom. That's really clear. Once I think consumers start to understand, they're not going to completely go away. I think we can all agree on that as well. I just think that it hasn't settled into the spot, the sweet spot of where it's going to play its role in the market. And I think right now it's playing in a higher league than it should be playing. I think for a lot of these 
above one carat center stones, like folks that are opting to either upgrade and go bigger or whatever, not totally realizing the perception of what they actually are. And from my perspective, as a consumer, I like to buy things of value, you know, whether it be a car or whether it be a home, I'm not looking to invest in it. So I'm not looking, I've heard this discussion as well of like, when I buy a diamond or even a house, I'm not looking to make an investment in it. It, it always is an investment, but I'm not looking to make money on it, like per se. I'm looking to buy something that will hold relative value. I don't want to go buy a car and know that I drive it off the lot and tomorrow I bought it for 10 grand and tomorrow it's worth zero. We all know that when you drive it off the lot, it loses value immediately, but I don't want it to lose all value. I want to make sure that I'm buying something valuable that at least, and I think we're going to see this also, by the way, which we haven't seen at all with specifically diamonds with trade-ups. You know, when I was in the retail business, that was a huge piece of our business was folks coming in and trading their pendants uh, with the center stone or like, you know, obviously engagement rings and going from, you know, it's a 10 year anniversary and their, their original diamond was a one and a half carat and they want to upgrade to a three carat. Good luck with lab grown. Like it's not going to be a good conversation and that's going to be a rude awakening, I think. So the big retailers still based on what they spent rather than what they, what it's worth now, if I, if I remember correctly. I haven't looked at the data on this. I can tell you there's probably not enough data on this yet um, to yeah. see like straight up, but like what's really going to happen when somebody spent 10 grand on a lab grown and in three years mm -hmm. from now, they go back and say, Hey, I'm trading up. I spent 10 grand. I've got a value for 10 grand and the things worth zero. Like what is mm -hmm. actually going to happen there? It's not going to be good. But that estimate of five to 10% decline in prices that you mentioned before, were you talking there about lab grown? No, natural. That was natural, right. What sort of decline have you seen in, in consumer prices of lab grown this year? Massive, like very, right. very large. So, okay, I'm going to caveat it by saying that prices are still propped up. You know, margins are still really strong. But from what we were seeing, if you were to take the same exact item that we saw a year ago versus what we're seeing today with the same item from a purchase perspective, you're probably seeing a reduction of... 40% minimum, potentially a lot more than that. So, I mean, you're seeing pretty drastic drops in the retail side. All right. The, the last maybe month or so, we've seen a bit of a stabilization in some of the trends, this negative trends in prices and things like that. And in natural, when we discuss it here, the explanations include what's happened in India with the pause on rough imports and the reduction in inventories. But also one element of this is there does seem to have been an uptick in demand from US retailers ahead of the holidays, not a dramatic uptick, but there is, there does seem to be some demand for the holidays. How have the holidays gone so far from your perspective? And just to touch just my final point on sort of the pricing, and I'll dovetail that into kind of the holiday purchasing. You reference sort of like the stabilization. And if you look at the diamond pricing charts, specifically for natural, you see a dramatic decline. And then you start seeing the uptick. I think we're going to continue to see an uptick. And I think we saw a kind of extreme decline. And I think a way over correction, if you can call it that. And I do think we're going to see as the lab grown piece starts flushing out fully through the system, I think we're, we are going to see continued upward trend of natural diamonds. And I think you'll see a settlement like somewhere 50% above where bottomed out. So you're right. I think we're going to keep seeing that trend. And then to kind of dovetail that right into 
the holiday season, most of the folks we talked to and some of the data we looked at showed that the Thanksgiving weekend was really good. Like really, really strong shoppers were spending. Then it sort of lulled a little bit and it felt like the last handful of days were starting to get out of that lull and pick back up. Now we've got, you know, another five days till Christmas. And then a lot of people sort of disregard the last week of the year, but the last week of the year for us has always been really strong. And I think there's a bit of an unknown still because we're sort of right in the middle of the storm right now. From where I'm seeing trending wise, it looks like we had that big bump for Thanksgiving, lulled a little bit, picking back up. I think we're gonna see it continue to pick back up. I think at the end of the day, if I were to guess, we can rule out both extremes. Like I think that having a smashing, like amazing holiday season is probably not in the cards. And I think vice versa, having like a really, really poor holiday season is also not in the cards. So I think we can rule out both extremes. And I think you're going to end up settling somewhere around baseline. It's going to be plus or minus 3% on either side. And I think the next 11 days basically decide how that shakes out. The one thing we're seeing, and this is not surprising, but it's worth mentioning because it's a potential action item for listeners, is... The folks that are truly adopting digital, we're seeing more and more just having more success that are doing it in a meaningful way. I mean, I still feel like there's a lot of, especially independent jewelers that have adopted digital, but they're not really, it's not functional. Anyone who has meaningful e-commerce presence, like, okay, that's great, right? I think they're doing well, especially if it's supplemental to a brick and mortar. Um, anyone who's who's able to like truly leverage and with tact retargeting campaigns, local campaigns and stuff like that, those folks are doing better from what we're seeing. So I think they're going to end up doing better in this holiday season, but I think it's going to be a mixed bag. I mean, kind of my short answer is that it's going to be a mixed bag. We're going to be somewhere around flat baseline plus or minus 2% either way. Using digital ways of keeping in touch with customers, you're saying. So it's it will be things like storing information on customers' preferences, buying patterns, so that you can then market to them the right thing. Is that an example of the sort of thing that would be successful, a good use of, of digital? Yeah, exactly like that. It's like really successful retargeting campaigns. Like if jewelers aren't doing that, like those are the folks, that's where you get those incremental gains. And that's how you get those efficiencies is by, it doesn't have to be e-com. I mean, I mentioned e-com and folks that are able to sell e-com online meaningfully, like that's phenomenal. That's great. And they should continue to do that. But we have a lot of jeweler partners that are, they don't sell any e-com, but they're so good at localized marketing with digital. Retargeting is the best example I can give, which is somebody walks in your store and they don't make a purchase. You should be retargeting them on social. You should be using strategy in order to stay top of mind for them. And so leveraging digital to do that. And those are the jewelers that are, I find that are having real success. Has it been a very promotional season so far with discounts? True answers, I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of that, but I could be very wrong. It's really interesting because we're in such a complicated market where it's so difficult to decipher what's going on. Because if you look at the macro, all of this fluctuation in diamond, natural and lab-grown diamond pricing, you have this huge shift in lab-grown. U.S. election year coming up, and then you have a U.S. stock market that is raging hot. Like... There's so many different conflicting elements there. And that's why ultimately I say it's like, we're going to end up near baseline because there's these polarizing forces and it's a bit bipolarish. 
And so I think it's hard for folks to figure out. So it's very much to me a case by case basis. I think some jewelers have done really well and I think some are not going to do so great. At the end of the day, you're going to end up with a balancing effect where you're going to end up with somewhere in the middle. So what do you think would be behind the Thanksgiving surge then if it's not discount? Why, why specifically then? I think consumer demand is still strong. I really do. I think the consumer preferences and purchasing habits are shifting and have always been shifting and they always will shift. But I think you're seeing bigger shifts happening right now just because there's bigger elements happening in the actual both macro and micro environment. So that's just creating a lot of shifting. But I still think consumer demand is strong. We have seen a reduction in engagement ring purchases. Not dramatic, but there's been some reduction there. I believe that it's consumer preferences and purchasing behavior. I think millennial and specifically Gen Zs buy things differently. I think that they cohabitate, but marriages are, I think, going to be down. And I think engagements are down. It doesn't mean folks aren't cohabitating, coupling. I just think that the slight change in consumer preference, I don't think it's some massive shift. And I think there's a lot of dramatic effect, I think, in our industry, but in every industry in terms of like, not everything has to, lab grown is extreme. I'm going to put that aside for a second, because that is a, a real significant change in the business. But everything else, a lot of folks have a tendency to just go really extreme one way or the other. Some of these are subtle shifts. Like I think the behavior of a millennial buying engagement rings, like these are subtle shifts. It's not full like market shifts. So I think it's really important to keep that in mind. You want to be able to capitalize on those shifts, but also like keep a level head to understand these things are, can be very subtle. And I think that that's important to keep in mind. All right. What, what do you think of the theory that particularly Signet, has, Signet Jewelers has promoted? But I also heard it from the CEO of De Beers yesterday, that there was a lull in dating during COVID and that now we're seeing the effects of that because there's fewer engagements. I partially buy into it. I fully buy into the fact that there was a lull and that you can't have lockdowns like what we experienced without having some effect and probably a very substantial effect, which we saw. The real question, this is why I partially buy into it, is how long does that take to filter through the market? You know, you can't say in 2030, well, we had a COVID shutdown and we're still feeling the effects of that. Like, you can't. So the question is, how long does that period last for? And are we still in it now? And those are the questions we have to ask is like, is it still affecting today? And I think a little bit, like I think it's being dramatized and I think Signet is probably overstating it. How long does the after effect take hold? I think we're sort of in like the last innings here of that. So what we're seeing right now is a little bit of a combination of that, but more uh, actual subtle shift in purchasing behavior. Also, with in addition to fewer engagements because of, of social changes, are you also seeing that those who are getting engaged are more likely to choose something other than a diamond engagement ring, such as a gemstone or something completely different? Not really. It's generally lab-grown or natural diamond, but they're outliers. I mean, 98% are still diamond in some fashion. I think we see, like I mentioned before, I do think we see a lot of restabilization of natural in engagement rings, and you're going to see a healthier balance for natural. 
you know, let's just say we're at 50-50 right now, which is really probably too high, maybe 60-40. I think that goes back to like 80-20, something like that in terms of a split between natural and lab. I'm really interested to see what happens with things like studs and things like diamond tennis bracelets, which I think could have a bit more impact long-term, speaking long-term, than mm. the effect that we're going to see in the engagement rings. When you use numbers like that, do you assume value or volume? Because obviously that makes a big difference with when we're talking about lab-grown. Volume. Right. You did touch before on some of the macroeconomic issues, but I wanted to ask specifically about inflation, because earlier in the year, that's what everyone was talking about. And that issue seems to have eased a little bit. Do you think inflation is still having an impact on the US consumer, particularly when it comes to higher value purchases? Glad you asked this, and I should have mentioned it in the macro trends because it's really important. I got my economics degree at the University of Wisconsin. We spent a lot of time talking about inflation because it's so important. I think we're at a very pivotal moment in time. Next year is going to be super, super important. If you pay attention to the larger discussion about inflation and about the US Fed, what they're doing and what they're going to do, you know, they're now signaling that they're going to have three quarters of a point rate cut next year, you know, probably three rate cuts. Inflation, if it's not completely 100% wrangled up and under control, like if they haven't done their job, the Fed hasn't done their job with inflation right now, we could see a rebound of inflation next year. And not to be like a doomsday guy, but like I'm just saying a potential outcome is I don't know if we're totally out of the woods with inflation. Now, going back to the actual question that you asked, is it still impacting consumers and is it still impacting purchases? Yeah, I think that consumers are still feeling price increases everywhere. Like the target inflation rate is 2%. We're still at 4% inflation in the US. So things are still priced really high. I mean, if you look at credit card usage and credit card balances, they're like skyrocketed. So people are leveraging credit really highly. And I think it definitely still impacts folks, but people are spending money. Like consumers are spending money for sure. That's why I said, like, I think the demand is still there. What happens? Are folks overspending? Um, going to see what happens next year. You know, I'm holding my breath and keeping my fingers crossed that the inflation is under control and that if inflation is under control and rate cuts happen next year, we're going to see a really good year next year. You know, we'll see a really strong 2024, I believe. Now, if that doesn't happen and inflation is not under control and the Fed can't cut rates, we're going to see a whole potential different outcome. But for this particular season, in terms of inflation, I do think it's affecting people. I actually don't think it's affecting consumers purchasing that much though. I think people are still purchasing. They're just leveraging up debt like crazy. They're purchasing. I got this right. That Because of the higher cost of living, they're taking on more debt in order to make those purchases. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah. It's right. like they haven't adjusted to saying, we're going to start spending less. It's they've adjusted to, we're going to continue to spend, mm -hmm. we're going to leverage debt, whether it's like buy now, pay later, which is huge, right. huge, or credit cards or whatever, other mm. types of debt. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And retailers are facilitating that through sort of store credit cards or what, what's the most common way of, of actually facilitating this? So a lot of jewelers offer like store financing and store financing, mm. traditional credit card debt. I mean, that those were the numbers mm. that I was referring to, was looking at is just like credit card debts right. are like really, really high. Buy now, pay later especially online, like e-commerce, buy now, pay later, 
I think the biggest weekend they've ever had, those businesses did mm. really, really well for Black Friday, Thanksgiving weekend. Well, I'm thinking, how does that reality that a lot of increasing amount of sales, let's say of jewelry, are on a basis like this, on buy now, pay data or with credit, how does that affect the way that the retailer markets and sells? I mean, would it be the same way as before? Just you market them what they want, irrespective of whether they can afford it right now. Would there still be a step to lower price points because they know they're buying on debt? Or what's how does all this work? So the way it works, the number one mechanism of what that thing does, what that tool does, is it lessens the friction. So it makes the actual act of the purchase much easier. Can you see people spend a little more? Definitely. But does it make actually getting somebody to spend money two ways? One is potentially they'll, they'll up buy, you can upsell them and they'll spend more money. So they were always going to spend, but it's just like, hey, you can get interest-free financing. Here you go. That's one way. The second way is that person maybe was actually not going to make a purchase at all, but like you've reduced an e-com, some sophisticated e-com companies are really, really good at this, getting you to pull the trigger when you're sort of on the fence of buying or not buying, when it's sort of a binary decision sometimes, really reducing the friction a lot, which this buy now, pay later really helps reduce the friction and says, look, it's easy to buy this. Here you go. Like you don't even need any money. So those are the two ways that really, and jewelers should honestly, should be using this to their advantage. Like these are tools. Most of the sophisticated jewelers are using it. Ecom definitely are using it. So those are things that I, I would recommend using. But I also like to say too, those spending habits that I was like I was referencing specifically the credit, that's not specific to jewelry. That's just at mm. large. So I still think right. like we're competing heavily with like the travel industry. You know, folks are traveling a lot. So we still have our challenges. Like I do think that there's been, like we've talked a lot on this podcast, like there's the whole micro industry specific environment of prices dropping and certain, like we've talked about changing consumer preferences and all that stuff. But then there's also sort of these macro tools, buy now, pay later, debt. And these are all things that are really important to pay attention to, not just what's happening in our industry, but also something else I'll mention too, not to veer too far off topic, but you know, if you look at some of the luxury, again, going outside of our industry, other luxury goods are struggling. So, you know, there was just a report that said, I forget which luxury retailers, it was not jewelry specific, but there were luxury, I think, clothing retailers that were signaling some downward pressure. And I think it probably comes through is there's very complicated dynamics and there's a little bit of bipolarism happening in terms of the data that we're getting because there's such a complicated market right now. Right. We better leave it there. Dustin Lemick of uh, Brightco, it's been really a pleasure to learn about your business and your views on the jewelry business. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm very grateful that you've uh, joined us on this podcast. Joshua, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, it's a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rappaport Diamond podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes. For more discussion, news and analysis about the diamond industry, you can visit Rappaport.com, follow Rappaport Group on Instagram and follow Rappaport on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. We also invite you to watch our weekly market comment videos on our YouTube channel.